My name is Maria. And I'm Rachel. And we're the hosts of Remember Me. Each week we'll be tackling a different component of FTD, and we invite you to come along on this journey with us. We'll be interviewing the Dream Team at the Penn FTD Center, a multidisciplinary team of doctors, social workers, researchers, and beyond. This season is a beautiful combination of stories and science where you'll hear from both experts and past guests. Whether you're on the other side of this journey, if you're in the thick of it, or sadly just starting to hear about FTD, our goal in creating this series is to provide more context, more understanding, and lots of compassion for both you and your loved one. As we share the stories and we listen to the science, it's our hope that this season reminds you that you are not on this journey alone. This is season eight of Remember Me. So today we have the privilege of having my honorary godmother and my mom's best friend, Melina, welcome to Remember Me. Thank you. Tell everyone a little bit about yourself, just how you how you come to know Leah and just give everybody a little overview because you're you're a newbie to the podcast. So Leah and I actually we grew up in the same church community of St. George in Bethesda, Maryland. And she is five years younger than me. So we rarely crossed paths, but we just were acquaintances growing up. But then after we both married and started having families, that's what brought us together because our children were the same age group. And as they got involved in activities in the church, that's where the parents, you know, would meet. And again, I knew of her, she knew of me, but we just kind of connected. By then we had grown a very strong friendship and, you know, mothers getting together. And also I believe uh, Gary, your father, Maria, and Steve had this, I want to say almost immediate bond that brought the four of us together. But Obviously, the men worked and we, you know, would do our thing for two moms. So that's how we started a friendship that, you know, it's not how long you're friends with someone. It's the quality of the friendship, I believe. And even though we knew each other for many, many years, you'd never know that the actual friendship started in our adult stage of life. I know two people like that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Can you describe for our listeners pre-FTD, like what was Leah like? What okay. was the relationship, like the, the feelings of the friendship? Let me just preface by saying that we're both Greek. So for those of the people that have seen my big fat Greek wedding, there's a, a scene where she's describing the, you know, I'm we're big and we're loud and we're in everybody's business. And that's the way not only Leah was, but I'm like that. We fed off of each other in that respect. And we are very passionate. So she did everything with a zest. She gave 150% uh, of enthusiasm and encouragement and just to be a good listener and, you know, as a friend, et cetera, et cetera. So she was very, I don't want to say animated, but you knew, you, you, you could feel her presence and you could feel her excitement about something or you could feel her compassion for you or, you know, whatever, whatever the situation was that you were talking about or involved in. So. Now take us to the moment where you were like, um, hmm, this is very different from the person that I knew for years and years before. Do you remember that instance of being like- Oh, absolutely. But I have to provide a little bit of background. Okay, so this was, I believe, 09, uh, 2009. Uh, Leah and Gary, her husband, were looking to maybe change. Like they weren't happy. They were settled here in Potomac, Maryland or Bethesda, Maryland or North Potomac where they lived. But they were looking, something was missing and they wanted to capture that. I mean, we used to joke about it with Leah that she wanted to be in a Mayberry kind of community. And 
for your listeners, Potomac is hardly that. Okay. So they were looking and they were moving. So during that time, the reason I, this is important is because during that time, she would actually go with her husband. If her husband had like a stint down in Alabama, she would go with him and it could be for weeks at a time. So I wouldn't see her maybe even for a month or two. We kept in touch constantly through texting and everything. And this is critical because when I get to that part of when I started noticing the change, we were always staying connected. And when they were back in town, it was like we picked up where we left off. It was never like there. But I knew that in their hearts, they really wanted to relocate. Gary had something in Boston and uh, the older children were up in Boston. Leah went up and basically I think that just sealed the deal in her mind and in Gary's. Gary was from New England to begin with that my my children, my two older children are up here. My husband is from this area. I think this will be our Mayberry. And they went around looking and they found Bedford. So I wasn't with her like I was up until that point, you know, daily or weekly or whatever. It was after the move that I started noticing just changes in her. And at first I thought it was because of the move. Like I just attributed some of the perceived distancing as they're busy. So I know that there were a couple trips that you made up to Boston, and I think you saw changes each time. I think there's one example in particular that maybe you could take us to that was just like, you couldn't ignore the change anymore. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So now I I had noticed things that I thought were odd. Uh, And again, I attributed it more to the distance and the move. And then in July 2016, 2016. we traveled to Boston to attend a sibling's wedding, Kent family wedding. And leading up to this wedding, throughout the year, I would reach out and say, oh, did you find a dress? And there was a lot of one cryptic answers like, yes. No, I'm told I have to wear this, you know, like not Leah, not to me anyway. I mean, usually even if she was going to complain about something, I get the whole story behind it. I wouldn't just get a no. I I mean, I would get like the juice, you know, (laughs) the, the good stuff. So anyway, as you know, we arrived, first of all, let me, we arrived the day before and normally when I would be on a plane coming, it was like she would have been like waiting at the gate to to come greet me. I mean, I know you can't do that, but I'm just saying like the excitement, the texting, the exchanging, you know, like, let me know when you're here. In this particular case, we arrived on a Friday, the Friday before, and I, I texted and I said, we've landed in Boston. We had rented a car. We're coming. And she's like, okay. That was the response I got. I thought, gosh, I have, she's preoccupied. And see, I always thought of what could possibly be going on. And we were supposed to be at whatever event was going on that night before. But the information was kind of vague. Like I would text her like, okay, the hotel, is it at this hotel? And she's like, well, yeah. And then I'm like, okay, what time? Or like, Anyway, long story short, it the the it wasn't very clear communication. And every now and then what she would say to me is, I'm going to have Gary text you. That was kind of odd to me. So the next day is the wedding. And we arrived, attended the wed- the ceremony, beautiful. And they chose to have a receiving line right outside the church uh, before people got back into their cars to go to the reception. I want to say how we were lined up. I was first. I don't know why, but uh, my husband and then the two kids who she knows very, very, very well. Okay. All of us. And um, Leah was at the end of the line. So we're going through, I mean, I didn't know the bride's parents as well. I knew I, I had met them once before, get to, you know, big hug from the father of the groom. And then I'm expecting to be pounced from my dear dear friend as 
Greeks always, I mean, we're very, I, I, I should have said, we're also very affectionate, kind of like we always hug and kiss and, you know, we're just too much sometimes. But anyway, uh, all she did was put her hand out to shake my hand and thank me for coming. That moment is indelible in my mind. Like I was like, and all I could, I didn't even know what to say. It was like, thank you for coming. I was like, like, I, I almost, I think I might've, of course, like we wouldn't miss, you know, this, this is a huge family moment. Why we wouldn't miss this for the world. And I said, absolutely. And then, you know, we had to keep moving. So I didn't pursue this, but the fact that she put out her hand to shake my hand and then said, thank you for coming. And, and looking at me in, in, you know, eye to eye contact, it wasn't like she was just, let's move on. I thought, this is very strange. And the next person to greet her would have been my husband, whom <laughs> she had a, a very soft spot for my husband. And it was the same thing. But to him, he's just looking at it like, oh, she's just going through the motions to keep the line moving. And then the kids were like, you know, I, I know she recognized them and everything, but they were like, mom, what's, you know, they, we got into the car and I just sighed. I was just like, something is just not right. That's the first thing I said. And then both kids chimed behind me that, is she okay? Or is she like, they, they, they picked up on something that it wasn't the way they, they were used to interacting with her. Like they almost, they said, I, I, we didn't feel like she recognized us. And I go, of course she recognized you that I don't think that's, it. you know, like, and I think she did recognize, but it was just, I don't want to, I hate using the word behavior, but that was the moment. That's how she behaved at that time. So it was a very interesting moment, but I, I lost, I mean, I, I didn't cry or anything, but I was just like really frustrated. Cause I was like, this is something's just not right here. Like something was off. So at the reception, I mean, normally we would be interacting. And what I noticed was she was moving slow, just, you know, like down and um, was not interacting. And what was interesting is like, we would always dance and didn't come on the dance floor. I mean, we kind of pulled her onto the dance floor. And most importantly, when the father of the groom gave us a speech or a toast. She was sitting at the table and seemed completely distracted, which was very odd to me. This is her. I I know that there is a soft spot for her children. I never expected to see that. I thought, God, this she's really something is really not right. Okay, today we have the honor of having Lauren Massimo, the co-director of the Penn FTD Center, and we're so excited to have you. We're so excited to dive into the topic of apathy because this, this is a big one. This is one that we talk about a lot on the podcast, mm -hmm. and we know that you do a lot of research in this area, so we're very excited to have you Welcome to Remember Me. Thanks so much for having me. Can I also say Lauren Moonlights as the FTD tour guide at Penn? <laughs> she gave us a beautiful tour of their center. It's gorgeous. We hope to go back. Oh, I would love to have you back, please. Anytime. So we both have a lot of experience with our parents with the apathy. I think at the time it was so early and pre-diagnosis that we didn't really know it was related to the disease. Mm -hmm. um, but Rachel, I know you have some examples you'd like to share and maybe we can dive into kind of exploring what the apathy is all about when it comes to FTD. Okay. So I think the first introduction that my family had with apathy was my mom's mom died pretty suddenly. And my mom rushed out to the hospital and called my dad on the way and was like, she's gone or she's leaving as we speak. And I, I'm panicking. And he said, okay, do you want me to come? Mm -hmm. And she's like, y yeah, I, I'm going to want you <laughs> there. And when he got there, I was there as well. He was very blank. Like there was Flat. not 
Exactly. Mm -hmm. No emotion, just mm -hmm. going through the movements almost. Fast forward a couple of days, it was the funeral. He like didn't want to wear a suit. He wanted to wear like a t-shirt with a jacket over it and just no social regard for like looking appropriate. And during the service, I mean, like hands in his lap, no love, no comfort. So I know we're going with an example, but could you define apathy? And then we can maybe meander it into that example. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I just want to start by saying that the story that you've just shared is a very common one. Apathy is probably the most common symptom that we see in individuals with FTD. And in behavioral variant FTD, it occurs in about 90% of people, right? So most people, and, and that it occurs early on, like you said, it's one of the earliest symptoms that we see in individuals. It's one of the first things that families will notice. And like you said, it's very distressing. Study after study has demonstrated that apathy is probably one of the most distressing behaviors for families to deal with because it just feels like their loved one just doesn't care, right, um, anymore. And so it's a highly distressing behavior. It's a highly burdensome behavior because people with apathy, and we'll get, we'll get into this, lose their initiative to participate in their daily activities, right? Like you mentioned, like dressing, he wanted to dress in a particular way. Maybe he just didn't want to give the effort to get dressed up for your, for his wife's, uh, his mother-in-law's funeral, right? And so people who have apathy rely on others very heavily, and that could be really burdensome for caregivers, right? So it's a really important symptom to pay attention to and to address. So apathy has historically been defined as a lack of motivation. But what we've come to understand uh, through research is that there are different aspects of apathy. And we can think about apathy as, as someone with apathy with having different types of apathy. So, and I'll get into this a little bit more, but there's been cognitive apathy that's been described that's related to difficulty with planning and organizing our day, right? We live in a really complex world. And if we're asked to do lots of things at once, or if the activity is way too complex, like think about just even like putting a grocery list together, how hard that is, right? We have to scan the cabinets, figure out what's missing, write all those things down, go to the grocery store, shop for them in an efficient way and come back. I mean, that's really a complex activity, right? That just may be too much. And so what we see in people with this cognitive form of apathy is that they can have difficulty with planning and organizing, uh, an important element of executive functioning, which you'll probably hear about during the series, right? Because that's a key cognitive function that is impaired in people with FTD. And so again, when things, activities are too complex, or if we just feel so overwhelmed that we can't plan out our day, we're just going to participate in really simple activities or just not participate at all, right? We just may sit on the couch and watch TV because it doesn't take up that mental bandwidth that people with FTD just don't have. Can I ask a quick question? For sure. Yeah. Do you think that the people that are experiencing the patient or the person with FTD that is experiencing apathy, do you think they know, like, I can't make a grocery list. I can't, something's going on. Like I can't write it. That's Yeah. That is a great question. In some cases, people with FTD, as you know, lose insight or lose self-awareness. So, so they may not know, right. Or they might not be able to reflect on their difficulties performing activities, or they may write it off as, oh, it's fine. I just really like to watch Murder, She Wrote over and over and over again, right? But other people with FTD do have insight and they know that they have apathy. They know that they want to participate in activities. They know that they want to be engaged socially. They know that they want to be 
more active, but they just can't get there, right? And that's really, really frustrating for some people with FTD. And we've, we've heard that before. And I think that this is especially true for those individuals who have this, what we call cognitive apathy, where again, they have insight, but they just can't work through the mental steps of planning out and carrying out an activity, right? I wonder if that's related to like one common thing with my mom was that she was not using her phone as much for outgoing calls or messages like she used to. And Mm -hmm. I wondered if that was a breakdown. It sounds like it could be both like the breakdown of the processing of like figuring out, okay, I got to go find Maria's number, click it, type the message, hit send. But I also attributed it to just like her lack of interest. Yeah. Her apathy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why we've, this is such a great conversation, right? So, so you just laid out like four different steps for that one very simple, we think is such a simple activity, right? Picking up the phone and calling someone, but there's different steps involved in that. So, right. So that may be too complex for somebody. And so they're just not going to make the phone call, right? But we know that apathy can also be related to, you said, a lack of interest, right? And Rachel, you described that your father was just kind of flat and emotionless when his mother-in-law passed away. And so people with apathy can also have a diminished emotional response, um, diminished emotional expression, and that can sometimes be related to the reward system, which we know is disrupted in people with FTD. So we know that individuals with FTD might not be motivated by smiles from their spouse or uh, a warm embrace, right? They may also not be motivated by uh, negative consequences that guide our behavior, right? So scowling at your partner for not taking out the trash, right? Or not hanging up the, it's the holiday season. So not hanging up the holiday lights outside, like getting angry, right? So there, there's this kind of reduced responsiveness to these types of signals that can also cause apathy as well. Then the third kind of aspect of apathy that we think about is a reduced initiation or diminished initiative. So People with apathy, especially we see it in a lot of the really severe forms of apathy, have difficulty initiating their thoughts or behaviors. And so they just look very flat. They sit around. They rarely initiate any conversation. Sometimes you see them rarely initiate any movement. And it takes a lot to get them going. We sometimes see this too in individuals with Parkinson's disease that have also have a lot of difficulty with initiation. So there's some overlap there as well. But what's interesting is that when these folks who have difficulty with initiation, if you can get them going, just get that spark going, then they can often continue out on their activity. So I think, again, it's really important to think about that apathy is not just apathy, And it may not be about just one thing, like lack of motivation, but there could be these other facets that can contribute to this overall very complex uh, symptom or syndrome that we see in FTD. When I look back, always hindsight's 2020, always. Mm -hmm. It's like my dad hit every FTD symptom like in the book. So when I'm listening to this about apathy, I'm like, oh, that's what was going on. Whoopsie. One other thing that he displayed while we're talking about these different types is when we would ask him like, what's going on? Why are you not talking? Or why are you going to bed at four o'clock? Like what is going on? He would laugh. And he would put it right back on us. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? You guys are the ones that are, I mean, fill in the blank, not buying the right cereal at the store. Or you guys are the ones that are just on me. Like he had the retaliation, but he couldn't 
I can't explain it. Like he would be able to say he would something be able to back, articulate it. Yeah. Right. But he wouldn't be able to be like, well, I'm changing and I don't know why. So I know the insight was much lower than right. I was. I don't know. I guess it's sort of like a double-edged sword. You want them to be insightful, but then maybe it's better if they're not. I just wonder, like as a caregiver, when your loved one is displaying apathy, like what's the number one thing you could do? What's the number one thing you could do? Well, I think you just talked about how challenging it is and how hurtful it is as a person that is sitting in front of you, it has no insight, no awareness is making, sounds like making excuses. It's, mm-hmm. it's infuriating. It's hurtful. It feels intentional, right? And I think it's really important to know that these behaviors that you're describing and there's overlap here with lack of insight or lack of self-awareness of apathy and of empathy loss as well, right? To know that these behaviors are directly related to the disease in the brain. And there have been study after study that's been done to demonstrate that these behaviors are arising from different areas in the frontal and the temporal lobes and that are not intentional or volitional. And sometimes it really feels like that. And it's really hard. And what we try to do, at least in our practice and in our, in our clinic is to show families that come in the actual MRI images of the person affected with FTD to say, here's the part of the brain that's causing this behavior. Right. So I think that sometimes it can be helpful to link these behaviors back to its brain-based and not person-based, right? That's um, why I asked it. I knew the answer, but I just wanted oh, okay, you to good. say it. Okay. Yeah. I feel like this is the <laughs> whole point of this entire series for me personally is like, there's not a lot we can do for many of the behaviors, but if I could go back and I understood that my mom was opening the car door while I was driving, not to tick me off, Right. But, you know, because of these behaviors, I just think it would have been a very different experience as a caregiver, as a daughter. I think I I would have had more compassion for her and myself just having the understanding. But at the point when she was diagnosed, we didn't know. We didn't know. I didn't know I that know. when she laughed, she would wander and she'd wander down the street. And one time I chased after her, I was nine months pregnant. And I was in distress when I found her and she laughed. Right. Right. I mean, the behaviors, (laughs) the behaviors are just so hurtful and they're so hard to believe. Like your mother would never laugh at you while you're nine months pregnant, right? Before her disease. And you just, it's really hard to wrap your head around. And so again, that's why I think, you know, again, we try as much as we possibly can to really educate people about the brain basis for these behaviors. Again, that it's not intentional. It's really the FTD. And I think the other thing that is really important, I think that this podcast is doing such a great job of doing is sharing your experiences because people want to feel like they are not alone in this, right? I mean, again, you hear these stories. I was just talking to a caregiver yesterday who was telling me about her husband who spent down their life savings and she couldn't believe it. And I said to her, you're not alone. Unfortunately, this is an all too common story that we hear. And I think she, she said to me, really? Like she couldn't believe it. Right. So I think that that's really important too, is that we share these stories with other people so that they know that they're not alone. These are really unfortunately common stories that are all linked to these behaviors that are linked to a disease in the brain. It's interesting as we've been producing this season that like so many of the behaviors kind of overlap. So what I mean by that is like, take an example of a woman telling us that her dad had rotting food in his fridge and expired food all over the house. And he was someone who was like a foodie and a chef and just really loved, you know, good, good, good food. And I feel like that could be apathy. That could be, 
it, it could fall into all these different categories, right? And so it's kind of, just as a side note, it sounds to me that a lot of things stem from the apathy. And like, in terms of the scientific part of this, like, is that just like typically the, you know, first portion of the brain that's impacted? Like, can you break that down for us in layman terms, like this, the science part of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of overlap with the behaviors that we see apathy and empathy in particular overlap quite a bit. Even apathy and disinhibition overlap in terms of their mechanisms quite a bit. And scientifically, while we have been able to look at these behaviors, tie them back to different brain regions, and while some brain regions we see are affected by apathy and some are affected by disinhibition, but some are shared as well. So for example, I'll give apathy and disinhibition as an example. Right? They're two pretty different behaviors, but they also share in, in neuroimaging studies the mechanism of, of having disease in a part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which again is an important area of the brain for executive function, right? I talked about that earlier, planning, multitasking, organizing, those types of things. And it's an important area of the brain for judgment, right? For thinking through problems, right? And so if you think about that can cause disinhibition, that can cause someone to make poor decisions that may cause somebody to walk up to strangers on the street and say something totally inappropriate. But at the same time, as I talked about earlier, that can also cause apathy as well, right? Because we talk about people not being able to plan and think through their day. Similarly, there's also been some research demonstrating that the orbital frontal cortex is an area of the brain that's important for interpreting rewards and motivational information, right? So you can imagine that would also cause difficulty with empathy or someone's interpretation of things like smiling and warmth and right. So they just may not be able to interpret that information properly and then respond to that in a way like giving a hug back or smiling back, saying, I love you back. Right. And we kind of talked already about how we think that that contributes to apathy. So there is, there's definitely overlap in some of these mechanisms. You did say something earlier about how sometimes you could kind of spark something in someone who's demonstrating a lot of apathy, kind of being stoic and quiet and not moving too much. Can you tell us a little bit more about that or what you share with you know patients about maybe some strategies and trying to spark a little light? Yeah. Yeah. So for people with difficulty with initiation, we will use external sensory cueing. And this sounds like a fancy word, like what the heck is this actually, but it's just getting someone going on an activity. So like initiated prompting. So whether that's like using your hands to put their hands on like an activity, like a puzzle or again, in people who are very severe, maybe like playing with Play-Doh or, or something along those lines, or maybe even folding clothes, right? So just kind of getting them going on the activity. Other kind of external prompts that we use are auditory prompting. So like using alarms or using Alexa's to say, you know, hey, Lauren, it's time to get up and go for a walk. So, so those are those types of things that we can do, external sensory cues that we can use to help with people who have initiation difficulty, right? So again, the idea is just to kind of get them going and then they can complete the task once you once you get them going. So taking it back to like a real life experience, another thing that my dad would do more often than not, is he would isolate himself. So he would go into my parents' room and shut the door, or he'd go into the backyard and shut the door. And he just withdrew. Like he just had no interest. I know it was apathy, Mm -hmm. but it Mm -hmm. felt very like he had no interest. So in that situation, my reaction would always be, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to 
ruffle his feathers. So maybe he'll react and give me something. Or I would be like, okay, he needs space. I'm not going to talk to him. I mean, I would try all these different. Okay. Nothing worked, obviously. But when I look back, I always wonder, like, did it seem to him like I didn't care? Like I was just withdrawing too. Do you think with the research you've done, do you think when somebody is experiencing that type of apathy, there is any insight alongside it? Or is it the behavior has completely taken over and the insight's pretty diminished? Yeah. It sounds like your dad had a pretty severe form of, of apathy. And so, you know, you're going in there and you're trying to get him to do all these things and he's not responding sounds like that his insight was also pretty reduced as well, which again, can go hand in hand with apathy. And it's so frustrating, right? For because we know that, you know, what, what we preach in our clinics is stay active, stay active mentally and physically. And that's important for your brain health, right? The caregivers are looking at us like, uh, do you see him sitting here? Like, how do, do you want to come home with me and uh, help me out? Because it's so, like I said, it's very burdensome to have to do that constantly. And it's frustrating because you're getting nothing really back, right? Um, sometimes I think what can be helpful that I've learned from families and from caregivers is that in FTD in particular, food can be a good motivator. So we try to think about what is rewarding for that individual and to leverage that reward in order to entice them to get them up to take a walk, to get them up to take a shower, right? That can we be did that. that can we be did helpful. That. Yeah. I'm thinking of an you example too from the caregiver conference of this amazing woman. I don't remember her name, but she was saying the way that she gets her husband to shower is he loves like a clean shave. There's something sensory yeah, that right. he loves yeah. about it. So he, you know, he gets his shower and everything taken care right. of because he knows he's going to get the reward of right. the shave of after. And it and- may be that saying the word shave, right, may not register with that individual, right? They may not understand the meaning of the word shave, but maybe she is showing him, a, you know, the razor and the, the shaving cream, or, you know, maybe she's triggering that so that he knows that that's coming, or she's just worked that into the routine so that he knows that once he gets the shower, that that shaving is coming afterwards. Yeah. It's a multi-approach, you know, intervention really to think about how we can best manage apathy. I don't think that there's one single intervention that we can ever say is going to work. It's really a trying to personalize as best we can for an individual and it's trial and error and it can be really frustrating. For the listeners out there, I know Maria and I know the answer to this, but how do you find if you're the caregiver for someone with FTD and I can say, I am, or I was, and my loved one's interests changed. So instead of selling houses, my dad would walk outside and collect cigarette butts off the ground. Mm -hmm. So how can you kind of, I guess, investigate or learn what is going to get your loved one going? Like I used to work with kids that had autism and we would do like a behavioral we called it a reward. And we'd put out all these different things, a puzzle, a squishy ball, whatever. And we would see which one they go for. And then we would know like, okay, that's a preferred item. We're going to keep that <laughs> separate. How do you do that with somebody with FTD? How do you learn what's preferred if their interests are so significantly different? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, their interests do change over time. And I think you just pointed out, you know, uh, interesting behavior that we see often, right? This compulsion to pick up cigarette butts off the, off the ground. I mean, certainly you don't want to be offering someone cigarette butts to participate in, you know, in an activity or to get them going for a walk. And again, I don't think that there's just one single answer to this. It's really kind of going with the flow as much as you possibly can. So some people that we see are hyper oral, right? And so They just want to put things in their mouth constantly. And so in those cases, like, again, that's a different behavior, right? Being hyper oral is also a manifestation of of FTD, wanting to put, to have things in your mouth or chew something constantly. 
But like in those cases, like gum could be a motivator, right? So something to put in your mouth to have your mouth moving constantly to kind of help out with that hyper oral behavior. But again, could be a good motivator for that person as well. I think what you're saying is like every day could be different. What motivates every day, somebody yeah. one day is completely different from what they're going to enjoy. Exactly. Following. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You have to, you know, learn to be flexible and to adapt to the changes that are going to come maybe even day by day. I have a couple of questions. Just maybe you can like myth bust some things. So does apathy kind of change throughout the disease? Is it normally something that is an early presentation and then kind of, I don't know, fades, fades, gives way to something else? Or, you know, is, is it different for everyone? Is it more yeah. present? Like, what do we know about it? Is it more present in behavioral variant patients versus PPA? Like, are there any things that we've learned in research about how apathy kind of plays a role. Yeah. So yes, there have been studies that have looked at apathy and other behavioral symptoms and how they present and how they change over the course of the disease. And what we've learned is that apathy is again, one of the earliest signs of FTD, right? And that it persists throughout the disease course, and that it gets worse over time. Again, I want to just say this with a caveat that everyone's individual trajectory is very, very different, right? So I'm just kind of talking broadly about what we've learned from research. So what we find is that people, again, have apathy early on, it generally persists throughout the disease and can get worse over time, right? So maybe someone starts off with, and this is some of the stuff that we're studying right now at Penn, I talked about those different aspects of apathy, right? I talked about the cognitive apathy and the emotional apathy and the initiative form of apathy. And so it may be that someone starts off with that cognitive apathy where they're just having a lot of difficulty with planning out and mapping out their day and their activities, and so maybe they're just going to take a back seat to like really being a driver of what their activities are going to look like through the day, right? And then over time, as the brain becomes overwhelmed with the disease, it could be then that they develop that emotional apathy. And then towards later stages of the disease could develop more of that difficulty with that initiation apathy, right? So, so that could be the case. So that's a, an empirical question that we're really trying to answer right now. We think that, again, that apathy is, there are these different aspects or different types of apathy, and how do they change over time? If there's one thing you really, as the apathy expert, <laughs> you you are the pen apathy expert, according to Dave. And I know you do okay. a lot of research. <laughs> um, if there's one thing you really want our listeners to understand about apathy, like one big takeaway, what would it be? And you can have oh, a minute to think so about many, it. So many, so <laughs> many. Um, because I've, you know, I've been interested in apathy since I started working in the FTD space. So, I mean, you know, nearly 18 years um, I've been doing this. And thinking about this, because I was seeing all of these patients who were coming into my clinic, who were just sitting there totally flat and with their caregivers and family sitting next to them, like, why is he just sitting there? Ah, it's so frustrating. And I would say, well, you got to get him up. You got to walk. He's got to walk and he's got to go to the adult pay center and we got to keep him active. It's just extremely frustrating. And I wanted to know why it was occurring, right? Why it was happening. And so that's really kind of what led me to begin really very closely understanding apathy and dissecting it in a way to be able to link it back to these different mechanisms or different aspects of apathy that I talked about. So we have like a much better understanding now of why it occurs. 
So I think I'm kind of going to go two two points and you can pick which one you want. But I think one is that apathy is, it's really a very complex behavioral syndrome, right? That could be caused by these different mechanisms that can cause different symptoms or different presentations of apathy. So that's, that's one thing that I think is important for people to know. And again, I think the other thing that is really important to know is that we know that apathy arises from these different brain regions and that it's brain-based and that it is not an intentional or volitional behavior. Because again, it's one of the most distressing, one of the most frustrating. And I think when you tie it back to the brain, at least it feels less personal. And I I think, I don't know, as caregivers, I don't know. I think that that, at least I've heard that that can be really useful information. Yep. One of the examples in this episode is my mom's best friend just talking about how she went through the receiving line at my brother's wedding. And when she got to my mom, my mom put out her hand and said, so nice of you to make it. And then looked for like the next next person. This is like her best, best friend. Right, right. And I think it is a very, it is a hurtful, mm-hmm. it, it, I, that, that story has been told so many times, but it's mm-hmm. just that, that piece really truly is so hurtful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a part that stays with a lot of us on the other side Mm -hmm. of the journey of like, wow, like, did they not care anymore? But like you said, it's the, they're sick and this is a part of the disease. It's, it doesn't make it much easier, but it's at least you have an answer. Um, and so I'm glad that you you explained that you can't see it. That's what makes it so hard. All of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. Right. You're so different. Like they're not losing their hair. They're not hunched. Mm-hmm. They're, they look completely like they did five months ago before they started not caring about you or your loved one. Like it's very odd. And I know they say it's like kind of a slow progression that you don't just wake up one day, but it feels like that. Now, looking back, I'm like, there was one time where my dad was just different. Like he yeah. just, anyway. Yeah, I think you can look back to, you know, individual scenarios or individual events where it's where it's spotlighted, right? Like at a wedding and it's like, oh my gosh, how can you, how can that happen? How can you can't ignore that, right? So again, these symptoms generally are, we say insidious and slow and progressive, but I think that there are these events, meaningful events, perhaps birthdays, anniversaries, someone's mother-in-law dying someone's wedding and it's just like whoa it's there that seems so abrupt is she really able to process what is happening i want to believe that she was and i have an example of that they were here at our house visiting gary put her in the car this, now, at this point, she had started slowing down physically, too, but nowhere near where she was when the ALS became more uh, prevalent. But it was right before New Year's. Day trip, came down, spent one night, and then went back up. He just, I think Gary just wanted to get her, maybe, you know, if you bring her back to an area that, you know, as much as they wanted to leave it, they also had very good memories here. I mean, they're you know, they raised their four children, you know, so they're in our house. She's in a different room watching, watching something, actually watching Mayberry on the iPad. And Chris, uh, my son drops by. This is now Maria's uh, firstborn, born, and they had asked our son to be the godfather to their firstborn. Now she's not communicating anymore. She went up to Chris um, she's non-communicative at this point. She, Gary kind of knew how to read her, but she's not having any conversations, not even one word answers. She went up to Chris and started stroking his face. And to me, I want to believe that that was a moment where she knew that that 
kid that she knew as a baby actually was going to become the godfather and i think she knew and she was just stroking his face and we put on some music and we she started dancing in the kitchen like the old days Thank you for listening. This season, each episode has a companion blog post that we invite you to read on our website at remembermeftd.com slash blog. You can also check out our website for more support, more resources, and more community events. And you can follow all of our adventures on Instagram at remembermepodcast. A special thank you to the Penn FTD Center for their collaboration on this season, and a special thank you to our sponsors for supporting our work. For a list of sponsors, you can check out our show notes. This podcast is dedicated to Frank Baffa and Leah Kent. Beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey Kent.